You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Today we're going to be looking at a very familiar story. This is the Battle of Jericho. We've all heard it before. Maybe you remember singing the song as a kid. Maybe you remember being in Sunday school and hearing the story told of how the walls came tumbling down. And perhaps, just perhaps, you were at Waterloo Square a couple summers ago, and you heard everyone shout for the walls to fall down. Well, the Battle of Jericho is an unlikely battle. It's one that shows us the sovereignty of God, and is a battle where all the work is done by our Lord. It's funny, we, we say Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, but in reality, there wasn't a ton of fighting, and the Lord did all the work. We're going to see that. In this story, we see a city given to God's people. We see a procession up to take the city by a people that trust in the Lord. And then in the aftermath of the fall of Jericho, we see both the judgment and the mercy of God. So let's read the story. Joshua 5, 13 is where we're going to start. And then I'll pray and then we'll look through the story. Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days." Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, And the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. 
Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did for six days." On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it, it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from things devoted to destruction, lest, you, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the, sorry, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, and the people shouted the great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, at the cost of its youngest son shall he set up the gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come before you. We're humbled by your word. I pray that you would uh, open us to it now, asking that you would anoint uh, the word with the Holy Spirit. You would anoint me as I uh, preach the word. I pray that sinners would be saved today, uh, that the lost would turn to you, and that your mercy would be given. And Father, we do ask that uh, the church would be built up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we get into the story proper, we need to bring a little bit of context into where we are in the story. The Israelites have a new leader in Joshua. Moses has passed away. He was unable to enter the promised land because of his sin of striking the rock instead of speaking to it. The Israelites have miraculously crossed the Jordan River, and they have officially entered the promised land. This long-awaited moment has happened. They are now on the other side of the Jordan, and they are ready to begin taking the land. The, 
crossing of the Jordan was miraculous. And in order to remember that, they stack up seven stones to represent the seven tribes of Israel so that if anyone were to look at those stones and ask why they are there, they would say, because the Lord has brought us into the land. The problem is that the land is occupied by pagans who must be removed in order for the land to be given to Israel. But the first thing they do as they get into the land is not get all set up for battle. They're not sharpening their weapons. No, the first thing Israel does is get right with the Lord. Notice just before our passage, if you look at chapter 5, after they've memorialized the crossing of the Jordan, they ensure that Sorry, they, yeah, they ensure that all the males have the sign of the covenant in circumcision. Takes a little bit for that to be healed, but when it's done, they celebrate the Passover. That's what chapter 5 mostly deals with. It isn't until these things are done that they, to ensure that they are following God's law that we are turned to Jericho and we see the first major obstacle in their way. This large city that is well-fortified, and needs to be taken in order for the land to be conquered. Now, as we approach this very well-known text, as I said, many of you probably have heard this since you were very young. You might remember the kid's song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Well, like I said, it isn't necessarily a completely true statement, because as we'll see, yes, Joshua was the leader when Jericho fell, But what this text makes very clear is that it was not Joshua, it was not the warriors of Israel who defeats Jericho. No, this victory goes completely to the Lord. And this is a theme in the Bible. Seemingly strange tactics that result in God alone getting glory as the result. Now some of you might be wondering why I started in chapter 5 verse 13 instead of chapter 6 where the heading in your Bible might say the fall of Jericho. Well, I think that 5.13 is actually the start of the Jericho story. With the messenger speaking all the way to chapter 6, verse 5, and chapter 6, verse 1 being a little intercession by the author to give us a lay of the land. So don't think of this as two separate events, one with the commander of the Lord and another with the Lord talking to Joshua, but think of it as a single event where the Lord is giving his instructions for the upcoming battle. And as we get to chapter um, 513, Joshua is surveying the scene ahead of him and he looks up and there is a man standing before him with a sword drawn in his hand. Now obviously, if you meet a stranger that already has a drawn sword, it's a bit of an imposing situation. And so Joshua asks a very sensible question. He says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? In other words, are you here to help me or are you an assassin here to kill me? The man answers in verse 14. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. He's the commander of the army of the Lord. Now to have a figure from the Lord appeared with a sword drawn is usually not a very good thing. In fact, this only appears two other times in the Old Testament. The first is the angel that comes before Balaam's donkey, where had the donkey not turned aside, the angel said he would have killed Balaam. The second time is when David sees an angel with a sword drawn, ready to judge Israel over his sin, and then David absolutely falls to his face and pleads for mercy. 
See, when we see a a drawn sword in the Old Testament, this means the judgment is nigh. In both cases, mercy is offered, but here, the judgment is not against Joshua, no, but against the evil Canaanites, and in particular, Jericho. Needless to say, Joshua sees the drawn sword, and he acts appropriately. It says in verse 14, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And Then in a similar situation to the call of Moses, Joshua is told to remove his sandals. The figure says, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And it is here we get the sense that there is more going on here than just an angelic visit. There's more going on here. And as we come to verse 2 of chapter 6, we see the lines between the Lord and the commander of the Lord blurred. As you can see there, it says, and the Lord said to Joshua. What I see here is a manifestation of divine presence. Why do I say that? Why do I think that this is the Lord appearing to Joshua in a manifestation of the commander of the Lord's army? Well, there's a few reasons. First, Joshua falls on his face and worships the figure, and the figure doesn't stop him. He lets the worship happen. Second, holiness throughout the Old Testament is a manifestation of divine presence. Think of Moses and the burning bush. What does they say? They say, well, the burning bush, the voice comes out and says to Moses, take off your sandals for the place before you is holy ground. And third, we do have a blurring of the instructions, very similar to Genesis 18 when Abraham is visited by the three men, where the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh, is used as the commander speaks, and the Lord, Yahweh, said to Joshua in verse 2. So I do think this is an appearance by God himself to give instructions on what he wants to happen as they enter the land. At the beginning of chapter 6, we do have a brief authorial interjection giving us a lay of the land as we approach Jericho. This is what it says, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. We're in a siege situation. The walls are high, the gate is shut, the people are in, they're not coming out, there's no way for Israel to get in, and really there's no way for the people to get out. So Jericho had seen the Israelites, they know they've entered the land, and they've shut themselves up. And this might not just be a call to them shutting themselves up physically, but according to commentator Richard Hess, it may also symbolize the attitude of Jericho to shut themselves up, to refuse to hear Israel's message. And as we see later on, those who do turn to the Lord and join Israel are saved, while those who continue in rebellion and fight are destroyed. But the focus shifts to this, at this point. The walls are up. How are we going to get through these walls? Really, at this point in history, there's one strategy to get through walls. Well, two. Subterfuge, you lie yourself to get in and someone opens the gate, or you sit there for a very long time until they starve and either die or they open the gate. That's how you get through walls. Notice that as the Lord starts giving his instructions in verse 2, this isn't a deliberation. Rather, this is the Lord giving his instructions to his servant. 
And one of the most important verses in this story is found in verse 2. The Lord, in giving his plan, makes it clear that this is a gift to the Israelites. And not only that, but before anything had happened, he is saying that Jericho is as good as theirs. Look at verse uh, 2. And the Lord came to Joshua and said, or and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. There it is. Notice the tense of the word given. It doesn't say, I will give Jericho into your hands. It doesn't say, I am giving Jericho into your hands. It says, I have given. It's in the past tense, but the tense in Hebrew is one of completion, meaning that it's already done. He's saying, Jericho's yours. Here it is. So the first thing that the Lord states in his plan in order to take Jericho, the first fortified city in the conquest of the promised land, is this. He says, Jericho's yours. It's finished. He says, I've already given Jericho to you. You just got to go up and take it. Now really, this is how we have to view the promises of God. As we come in the Bible and as we read it day in and day out and we come to a promise of the Lord and we read that promise, then we need to see that as good as done because our God is not a God who lies. He is a God who is the truth. And here we have him telling the people, even though the walls don't have one crack in it, that Jericho is already theirs. It's as good as done. That's how we view God's promises. But now the plan, as a plan of battle, if you look at it from a military perspective, does seem absurd on its face, doesn't it? I want you to take an armed guard, the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, and march around the city. And I think this story is so well known that we really don't understand the strangeness of the plan. I think we look at it and we're all expecting the walls to fall down as the people march around the city. But we have to remember as we look at this very, very strange plan that God has already declared the battle won, Jericho is done, and the next seven days are less of a battle plan and more of a procession up to begin taking the land of Canaan. Don't think of it as an assault on the city. The city's already taken. You need to think of it as a ceremonial procession to come take the gift that God has already given them. This is what it says. Here's the plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpets, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is what they are to do. Now Joshua has a decision to make. The Lord has given him a very strange plan. He's declared the city theirs, but the walls are still standing there. And from a human perspective, you look at it and you don't see a single crack in the defenses of Jericho. And you look around and there's no way to get through the walls. He has a decision to make. Keep in mind... It's not very uncommon for Israel's leaders to push back against the Lord's plans. You remember Moses, Exodus chapter 3? He says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. 
And then Moses has an outright argument saying, I can't do that. There's absolutely no way I can do that. And he starts giving excuse after excuse after excuse. This is Moses, the one who trained Joshua. Think of Gideon, who the Lord calls, and he's like, wait a second, wait a second. Maybe I can just put this fleece on the ground and you can just prove to me it's going to be okay. Remember, the fleece is not this great moment. The fleece is him doubting the Lord. Think of Jeremiah who said, you know, anyone else, Lord. Again and again and again, we see God's chosen people push back against God. But in this case, with Joshua, who had been with them through the wilderness and have now entered the promised land, what we have in his reaction is no comment to push back against the Lord. But the only thing shown here is obedience. Look at verse 6. It says, So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed man pass before the Ark of the Lord. So he goes and he gives the directions to the people. Straight obedience. The Lord has spoken. Joshua says, Okay, I'm going to obey. Doesn't matter how strange I think it is, we're going to obey the Lord. Now, before we get into the, you know, quote-unquote battle proper, there's a few points of application we can take from this section. The first, as, the, as Joshua met the, met the Lord, manifested in the commander of the Lord's army, he was told to take off his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy. You see, the presence of the Lord is a holy thing. Joshua met with God and he worshipped. Now we, now in the new covenant, under the lordship of Christ, we're commanded to worship together with his people, with the Lord's people, once a week. That's what we're doing right now. We're sitting under God's word, we worship together, we sang together, we read his word together, we prayed together. We're in the presence of God, and we can only be ushered into that because of Christ, who is our mediator. Well, what did Joshua do when he was in the presence? Well, one, he worshiped, and two, he took off his sandals because it is a reverent thing to do. So that makes us ask the question, when we come to church to meet with God and to worship our Lord and Savior with the saints, are we coming to worship a holy God? Like, are we preparing ourselves to worship the Lord? Joshua did. As soon as he found out, the angels, or the, the Lord said, take off your sandals, and, and thus he did. Like, do we roll out of bed and do absolutely nothing before coming to church? Now, if that's what you did today, I'm really glad you're here. I am. But if that's what you're doing, you know, week in and week out, you come, your hair is completely unkempt, you look worse than you do at work, and you're like, well, you know, this is my day just to relax. I don't want to dress up. Well, you know what? Joshua's told to take off his sandals because... He was meeting with the Lord. We come to church to meet with God. We meet with his word through the preached word. We're able to worship him together. And one of the reasons why traditionally we would dress up for church is because it's like entering a holy place. Maybe not in the same way Joshua did, but there is a sense of what do we do to prepare? That's going to look different for different people. I'm not saying that we need to go rent tuxes every Sunday. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we do need to come to church with a mindset that we're coming to meet with the saints and worship a holy God. That's what I'm saying. Are we preparing to worship? 
Is this the last thing on your mind on Sunday morning? Is this like, oh, we got to make it to church, but, but man, I got to get this, 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 and this done before and consistently then show up late? You know what? It's a privilege to be ushered into the presence of God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to be here. So we give our best. We understand where we are. Now, the Lord gave Joshua some pretty crazy instructions. We looked at that. So what do we do when we read the Bible and we come to something that doesn't seem to quite make sense? Here's an example of that happening. For the seeker movement was formed because it seemed like there was a better way to attract people to church than the means that God had given. Instead of using the means given to us by the Lord of prayer and preaching, of God-honoring worship, what happened was it became a production more about making someone feel good than confronting sin and worshiping God. And so the pragmatics of it became more important than following the Lord. Now, what would have happened had Joshua thought to himself, pragmatically, we need to take this city. I'm going to twist some of these words that, you know, maybe we bring... uh, ladder or two as we march around this city. Maybe, you know, a few people, we try to get them in the gate as we're marching around the city. Had he tried to do that, would he be trusting in the Lord? No, that wasn't the plan the Lord gave. We don't want to add to what God has given us. We don't want to uh, take what God has given us and come up with our own way because we think it's going to be better. No, we need to do things God's way and our job is to be faithful. We're told that we need to preach the word in season and out of season. We're told to use prayer as a first means. Like, what's the first thing you do? Well, you go down, you fall on your knees, and you pray to the Lord before you do anything. We're told to confront people's sin. We're not told to make them feel good. We're told to make them understand that they're sinners before a holy God. We're told to love our enemies and pray for them. Now, we don't get these things from a sword-wielding commander anymore. Obviously, we get them from the Bible. This is how the Lord now speaks to his people. And what we need to do is be like Joshua and not push back. But if we see it in the Word, if it's properly exposited, then we got to do it right away. Obey it without question. Do what God has shown us to do. The Bible says it, we do it. And so the plan has been laid, and now it's up to the people to execute the plan properly. Do they trust the Lord, or do they not? So the city has been given to the people. Starting in verse 8, we see the procession up to take the city. And so we come to the, again, quote-unquote, battle proper of Jericho. Most of the description here is given to the first day as a description for all the six days, because they all looked exactly the same until we get to the seventh day of the procession around Jericho. And what we see is the people follow Joshua's lead, just like Joshua immediately said, okay, I'm going to obey the Lord. People obeyed Joshua, and in doing so, they obeyed what the Lord had commanded. And as we get to this section here, the only additional information that we get in the description of Israel's obedience is that they were told not to make a sound, Aside from the trumpets, 
and that there was a rear guard given to the ark. But really, you need to put yourselves in the shoes of these people for a minute. You get up early every morning, you march around the city, and then you go back to camp. And you do it day by day with seemingly no progress made at all. I mean, maybe one day you're walking and you see a crack in the wall and you get your hopes up. You're like, man, there's a crack there now. I don't remember if it was there yesterday. But seemingly there is no progress. But they were still doing it God's way. And nowhere in this text is there any inkling of doubt in the plan of the Lord, not one. They're just doing what they're told. In fact, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, it mentions the reason for why they were able to make the walls fall down. Hebrews 11.30, you don't got to turn to it, I'm just going to read it. It says this, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. They had faith in God, and that's why the walls fell down. It led to obedience and it led to victory because they knew it wasn't up to them. They gave it up to their Lord. Now I want you to notice the importance that the Ark of the Covenant plays in this section. It's mentioned often. Look at verse 8. And the Lord went forward, or sorry, and the ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. Verse 9, it says, was walking after the Ark. Verse 11, so he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city. Verse 12, it says, Then Joshua rose in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then verse 13 says this, And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on. So we have it again, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord, here in the narrative of what is happening as the Israelites are obeying the Lord to take down the city of Jericho. Well, what does the ark of the Lord represent? The ark always represents the presence of the Lord. This is why it's placed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and why it's placed in the Holy of Holies of the temple and why no one is allowed to go in there except for the priest once a year. The reason is that it represents the presence of the Lord. And so the important thing that we get as we look at what's happening is not the warriors, it's not Joshua, but it's that the Lord is present in this place. Remember, it's the Lord that is giving Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. They're accepting it. They're not going out and taking it by force. In what they're doing, no. They're taking it as a gift from the Lord. And like I said, really what we have here is a ceremonial procession lasting seven days of Israel receiving the gift of the Lord. They aren't fighting for the city. They are following the precepts of the Lord as they march and make music around the city. This is what they're doing for six days. We then come to the seventh day, the day of completion in verse 15. The people again follow the commands of the Lord, verses 16 to 19. Verses 16 to 19 are instructions that Joshua gives to the people. We're going to come back to that. But it is in verse 20 that we get the actual fall of Jericho. So look at verse 20. So the people shouted. This is when they're allowed to shout. And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sounds of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell down flat. 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And so this miraculous thing that happens, the walls falling down upon itself, that's what it literally means, and fell down flat. We have one verse dedicated to that. And again, the people didn't do this. They just yelled a lot. God did it for them. They're able to get into the city and capture it. And so even though the plan seemed crazy, the Lord came through with a victory that no one in Israel could get credit for. That's the point. Dale Davis said it really well. He says this, Since we have the tendency to obscure God's splendor and to steal his praise, he sometimes sets our contributions aside so that we and others can perceive that the overwhelming power comes from God and not from us. That's what happens here. And we see that in other places, right? Gideon and his 300 men, impossible odds, God comes through. Even in the prayer of Hezekiah, as the army of Babylon is there, he prays to the Lord, and this army is absolutely wiped out. Nothing to do with the people of Israel. And here it is again, or before all those things. They march around the city, they shout, and even as the song says, the walls come tumbling down. Why is it like this? Well, it's like this to give God all the glory. This is a couple points of application. We need, like the people of Israel, we need to trust in God for our victories. We need to do things God's way and then trust in him. And really, as we think of it, what was the important thing here? The important thing was that the Lord was present. One thing that I vividly remember from the conference uh, that we held back in, um, in November was when Pastor Richardson talked about how like, if we get 10,000 people here in this church and we don't have the presence of God, then what do we have? We have absolutely nothing. Like, if these people had, had marched, not just marched around the city, but had come up and overwhelmingly just climbed over the walls and took it over Jericho, but they didn't have the presence of God, what do they have? Absolutely nothing. One thing we need to be praying for as a church is that we never lose the presence of God. We need to ask him to be present here every single day. And I hope you're praying for that. It's not doing things in our own power. It's doing things in the power of God in God's way. And in doing so, he will bless what happens. I pray that for every endeavor in your life. Don't just pray for results. Pray for the presence of God. When God was present in the history of Israel, amazing things happened. When God is present, that is when he works. So the walls have fallen. And now we get to our last point, which is the city's fate. What happens? And in it, we have this very vivid picture of God's judgment, but also a very vivid picture of God's mercy. So let's go back and see Joshua's command to the people right before the walls fell. They've marched around the city seven times, the horns have blown. They're just about to shout, but Joshua has something to say. This is what he said. Verse 17. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Verse 17. Verse 18, he says this, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, 
lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So again, everything is to be devoted to destruction. Verse 21, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. This is after the walls have fallen. Both men and women, young and old, ox, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So they follow his command. Everything in the city is devoted to destruction. Verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. So again, this is a thing that isn't quite often told in the children's story, is it? God gives Jericho into the hands and the command is this. Destroy everything and don't take anything for yourself. The only things that can be taken are the precious metals that are to be put in the treasury of the Lord. This brings us face to face with what some people call a difficult passage. Before we get into it, I do like something I heard from Doug Wilson. He says this, if you truly believe in the Bible then you need to commit to have no trouble passages. You need to commit like, okay, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Lord wants me to know. We might have to deal with it in some way, but it's not going to be a problem for me. I like that. But we will look at a few things in relation to this. So everything and everyone is devoted to destruction. Man and woman, young and old. Now, what it's actually saying is set apart for the Lord. It's the literal Hebrew. The word destruction is not in there. It's implied in the tense of the verb. Okay? They're to be set apart the Lord for destruction. We know for sure that destruction is, is in there because of what it says if Israel doesn't do this, because then they're set apart for destruction. They'll be destroyed. Now, there is a temptation in our modern day to picture a bunch of peace-loving farmers being slaughtered by the Israelites in some mass genocide. Now, when we see it through this lens, many many who oppose the Bible would point to events like this and call it barbaric. Now, there are a few things to respond to this line of thought. We're going to look at them. First, there's a distinct reason given for this purge of the Canaanite people. Okay? There's a reason this is happening. There's a few reasons. But in Deuteronomy 20, 17 and 18, this is what it says. You shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Verse 18. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So the issue here is actually one of purity, specifically of worship. If the people were to remain in the land, then Israel will be tempted to join them in the worship of their false gods. And interestingly enough, this had already happened. Numbers 25 tells the story of the Israelites coming in with the Moabites and worshiping Baal Peor in the desert. You can look that up later, Numbers 25. And in fact, the Israelites do not fulfill what they're supposed to do. They don't wipe everyone out of the land, and it becomes a thorn in their side for the rest of Israelites, 
the Israelites' existence on that land. They're constantly being pulled away from the Lord. I mean, consider the next book, the books of Judges. What happens? Well, the people that are still there in the land that they didn't take out, that they were supposed to, they're there and they pull them away and they don't trust in the Lord until it gets to this point of degeneracy where what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah happens to a town in Israel. So we know that this happens. In fact, the purity issue is shown in the next story where Israel sins through Achan and the warning in verse 18 of chapter 6 that says, and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and big trouble in it, happens. The issue is purity. The issue is no sin in the camp. There's no double standard here. When Israel sinned and Achan sinned, what happened? They lost the battle, people were killed, and Achan had to be stoned. The issue here is purity. Purity of worship. Second, Canaan was a land full of sin and rebellion against God. Now there's two senses here, okay? First is the sense that we are all sinners and deserve death. So from Romans 3.23, something I'm sure we all know well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die. So to be quite honest with you, if God chooses to utterly destroy Canaan, then they're getting exactly what they deserve. But likewise, if he were to utterly destroy Canada, or any people for that matter, they are being properly judged for their sin. And we need to get our minds around that. No one is innocent. When we look at it from the perspective of the divine and we look down and we see a sinful people in rebellion against God, the fact that we are not judged this instant is a mercy. And if the Lord chooses to judge the people, then that is his prerogative. And as Romans 9 says, who are we to question the Lord? And oftentimes, God uses nations as an instrument of his judgment. Think of how he punishes Israel in the book of Judges. What does he use? He uses other nations like the Moabites. Think about how he took Assyria and Babylon and used them to judge the nation of Israel in order to bring them into exile. He uses sometimes even wicked nations to bring about his judgment. So the Lord bringing judgment to Canaan through Israel, is to bring justice to the land. And we look at it from the perspective of the holiness of our God. It is not barbaric. It is true justice. Now that's the first way of looking at the sin of the Canaanite people. Just like we're all sinners, we all deserve judgment. But in Genesis 15, 16, it says this. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is talking about a return to the promised land after they had been in um, Egypt for 400 years. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It talks about the inhabitants of the land getting so bad that their iniquity becomes complete and thus then comes the judgment. You see, the Canaanites were a very wicked people. 
Hear David Howard on this. He's a commentator. He says, The sins of the Canaanites appear in several places. Leviticus 18, 24 to 30, Israel is solemnly warned to abstain from the many abominations that the Canaanites had practiced. The larger context makes it clear that the entire list of sins in 18, 6 to 23 were sins that the Canaanites practiced. These included engaging in incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexual activity, and bestiality. And interestingly enough, if you look at the archaeological record, um, it is absolutely certain, as we know from the Bible, that child sacrifice was happening in Canaan. There is judgment here. This is the Lord judging a people and taking them out. And so the aftermath of the battle of Jericho is to bring the Lord's judgment on a wicked people. Just like what happened in the exile. When the Israelites, who had become a wicked people, were judged for their sin. These are a people who had rejected the Lord and committed abominations. Now, except for Achan, as we would get to if we were moving along to chapter 7, this is what happens. The people are utterly destroyed and the Lord gives Jericho into the hands of the people with Joshua. With Joshua even cursing the one who would rebuild the city at the end of the chapter there. The judgment of God is decisive, just, and all-encompassing. Now, you'll notice that as I was reading out that, I was skipping verses, right? So I, I read, you're going to utterly destroy them, and then I would skip a verse or two, and then talk about how they're to utterly destroy again. And that's because there's another element woven throughout the fate of Jericho. In fact, once we hit the seventh day, as much time is given to God's mercy as it is to the destruction of Jericho. So even as we have this um, instruction of the Lord to devote all things to, to destruction, we have woven in there this merciful God who will save those who turn to him. Look at verse 17. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you sworn to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. So right in the midst of the judgment of God, right in the midst where this wicked people are being utterly judged and destroyed for their sin, we see a prostitute, like a prostitute, a vile sinner, Right? But she is offered mercy. And it shows that mercy is offered even in the midst of judgment. The Lord will offer mercy. And the story of Rahab's rescued is emphasized as much as the actual taking of Jericho in the story. You see, we do serve a merciful Lord. If you repent of your sins and you turn to him, then he will be merciful. 
And we know Rahab joins Israel. In verse 25, it says this, and she lived in Israel to this day. So she settled in the land, and in fact, we know that she is in King David's family line. She married Salmon, who had Boaz, who had Jesse, who had David. And ultimately, we know that she's in Jesus' family line. So the aftermath, the fate of Jericho, shows both the judgment and the mercy of of the Lord. There's a couple points of application here. Number one, notice that the nation was judged. It wasn't just individuals. The Lord does judge nations. He does judge people groups, not just individuals. This is why we are asked or told, sorry, commanded, to pray for our nation. We want to be more like Rahab who turned to the Lord and not like the rest of Jericho who perished in the judgment. Now, Judgment came to Jericho and the Canaanites. And judgment, too, will come to all of us. As we looked at before, all have sinned. And when we die, then comes the judgment. So the question as we look at Joshua 6 and the fall of Jericho, the question as we get to the end of this so well-known story becomes this. Who are you? Who are you? Are you like Jericho and its king and its mighty men of valor who trusted in themselves and their mighty wall and thus were destroyed by God? Or are you like Rahab, a sinner who was given God's mercy because she chose to trust in him? The mercy of Rahab becomes even more because she becomes part of God's plan to bring the Messiah into the world. You see, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you turn to him and you repent of your sins, then just like Rahab, you can be given mercy. Rahab was a sinner. Twice she's called a prostitute here. No sin that you can commit that the blood of Christ will not cover. So if you turn to Jesus, he is faithful and just. If you repent of your sins, then he will show you mercy. That's my prayer for you. Join Rahab and be saved. Don't be like the people of Jericho who were destroyed. The battle of Jericho is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. But really, it wasn't much of a battle as we saw. Remember, before the Israelites had even stepped one foot around the city, the city was given to them. And it was completely a work of the Lord. It was his plan, and essentially the Israelites led a ceremonial procession up to take what was given to them. If the Lord says it, then it's as good as done. Jericho also shows us that our Lord will judge sin but that he also shows mercy to those who repent. So I'll leave you again with this question today that I just asked. Who are you with? Are you with the inhabitants of Jericho who stood proudly behind their wall until utter destruction came upon them? Or are you with the sinner Rahab 
who fell upon the mercy of the Lord and was stayed, saved from destruction. One will hold fast to their sin. The other will turn to the mercy of Christ.